Hi, my name is Peter Kaiser. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Retinal Physician Magazine. And today on the Retinal Physician Podcast, I'm joined by my really good friend, Carl Rogillo. Carl is the chief of the retina service at the Wills Eye Hospital. Welcome, Carl. Thanks so much, Peter. Happy to be happy to be on the program. Well, you've been really instrumental in the port delivery system, and this was just FDA approved on the 22nd of October. And I thought for our listeners, we kind of go through some of the things that really you can teach us. And and the first question, obviously, is now that we have this uh, FDA approved product, who are the patients that we should be considering using it in? Sure. As, as uh, everyone, I think, now is aware of, the device was approved. Um, what we used to call port delivery system is now called Susvimo, and, and uh, it was just FDA approved um, in late October, a few weeks uh, ago. And uh, it's a big development. It's probably the biggest uh development in wet AMD since, you know, we got anti-VEGFs that came our way. This is a whole new way of delivering anti-VEGF agents. Uh, of course, it's instead of intermittent office-based injections, um, sort of bolus uh, injections of the therapeutic, this is true sustained release. And it's in the form of a device, you know, that we implant surgically. Uh, it's an intraocular reservoir device. Um, uh, a short, relatively short outpatient operative procedure done under local anesthesia. And then it's uh, refilled in the office with a special refill exchange needle. And this is utilizing a high concentration of ranibizumab. So in fact, it's uh, 10 times the concentration what we would normally inject in the office that's FDA approved for, for wet AMD. And, um, and you're asking what types of patients, you know, it's uh, in knowing that this was coming, um, me and my colleagues actually ran a, a, a survey with patients getting wet AMD treatments and providers delivering therapy. And as you would imagine, providers are more inclined to offer, knowing the, the potential benefits and the risks uh, associated with the device as we've learned through both phase two and phase three, and then presenting all that information to patients saying, hey, if this device was available now, knowing again, what it entails, going to the OR, the risks involved and so forth, um, would you be inclined to consider and even have this device implanted? And as you would imagine, uh, for both the provider and the patients, uh, patients that were getting their injections more frequently were much more inclined to uh, consider it. In fact, it, the way it broke down was patients that were getting injections every four, six, or even up to eight weeks, it was up close to 75% of patients were, were very interested and would uh, potentially opt to have the device implanted. Now, keep in mind the way this device was studied, it was studied in patients that had already been getting injections. They had already been through this induction phase. Their vision had already improved to probably the best it's going to be. And this was introduced in the maintenance phase. And that's probably how we're going to use it in practice. Um, that's not to say it wouldn't be effective from the get-go when it's first diagnosed, but I'm sure most people, at least at first, most providers will start doing injections with their drug of choice and then see what the patient's individual needs are. If the patients are requiring injections frequently in the maintenance phase, uh, I think they're going to be much more inclined to consider that type of patient for the device, at least at first. Now, that could spread depending on their experience with the device uh, and the type of durability they might be getting out of it. Uh, you know, in phase three, of course, we mandated the refill exchange to occur every six weeks. But in practice, we may or may not 
do it that way. Uh, of course, we always deviate from the phase three clinical trials in terms of how we use uh, any of these types of therapies. Well, we're retina specialists. We use the, the label as a guide, right? That's, that's well, right. And, and I think a, a good point that I'd also want to cover is sort of who really wouldn't be a good candidate? Are, are there certain types of patients, even if they needed frequent injections, that you would say, yeah, you know, I really don't think you should get this? Yeah. Uh, also in the clinical trials, we only enroll patients that showed at least some responsiveness to anti-VEGF. So a patient that's not responding at all, and that's a very rare patient. I think virtually everybody responds. It may not be optimal, um, but um, virtually everyone responds. So I don't think it's a responder yes or no uh, type of choice here. But I think it's more ocular characteristics that would uh, sway you against using it or uh, be contraindicated. Um, and it, again, nothing absolute here, but knowing how important conjunctival integrity is over the device to prevent complications such as infection or another trip to the OR to fix a conjunctival problem, um, I'd be very hesitant and would be reluctant to use it again, especially at first in a patient that's had uh, surgery on the surface of the eye, especially in the supertemporal quadrant area. Uh, that could be previous glaucoma surgery or so forth in which the conjunctiva is scarred or thinned or abnormal in some way. Uh, I certainly don't want to put the patient at increased risk for a conjunctival issue because that's probably the, uh, the one of the bigger um, potential problems uh, that are unique to, to doing wet MD management with this sustained release device is, is managing a device in the eye and the integrity of the conjunctiva over it. Because if it's not intact, if it erodes or retracts and the device gets exposed, like with any exposed hardware that's in the eye, uh, it's a setup for infection. In fact, that's, that was the scenario for most infections in the clinical trials. So let's say that you implant this device in, and, and in the clinical study, they were refilling at a six-month fixed interval. But in reality, you know, we probably can go longer than that. In fact, the phase two showed that, that many patients were actually able to go longer than that. So in your practice, uh, if you have a patient with this, and you probably still have patients from the study who now theoretically can get, get treatment thereafter, how do you follow them? Do you say, okay, I'll see you in six months? Do you see them three months? You know, how do you follow them in the absence of home OCT, which would be perfect for this? Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. Uh, patients are highly likely to be able to go more than six months. Um, taking, let's say, the average wet MD patient. Now, of course, at first, we're going to be selecting uh, the frequent flyers, right? So um, maybe the device may not be quite as durable as in them as it was across the board and all the patients enrolled, for example, in phase two ladder study where median time to refill the device was almost 16 months, which is really incredible. Um, but I think in practice, you, you're right. A lot of patients will go nine, 12 or more months. And I'd like to put patients to the test to see how durable it could be. I mean, patients are really motivated to not have to get an injection or procedure. Um, and I know my personal experience with patients that have the device and I've implanted a lot through phase two and phase three is they really love the notion of not having to get an injection, even if they have to come to the office frequently. Um, and so it may not decrease necessarily the follow-up or office visit burden, but it's certainly going to decrease the injection burden. That's for sure. Um, so how do we monitor these patients? Well, I've heard some colleagues say, look, it seems pretty simple. I think I'm going to follow the phase three archway protocol and, and just inject every six months because uh, it reliably gives you six months. 
it's highly unlikely that you'll need a supplemental injection beforehand. In fact, 95, 98% of the time, you probably won't need to do any supplements, at least within a six month time frame. So um, that's one way to do it. And that actually would be pretty reasonable to start off. Uh, maybe if you're trying to get a feel for uh, how patients are benefiting and liking this and how they're tolerating it. Um, I think many of us though, are gonna try to truly individualize therapy and see how long patients can go and sort of put this device to the test for every given patient. And so that means trying to figure out when disease activity is gonna recur to a significant enough degree where you feel compelled to act to refill a device, for example. Um, you know, we don't have that home OCT yet. That's, that's the first thing people tend to mention, as do I, as a really neat way of trying to figure out when to refill this device in a PRN basis. So we may go from treatment extend with our office-based injectables back to PRN-like um, like approaches here. And I really do think that's, that's likely to be the case. So that means I'm gonna to have to see the patient at least somewhat frequently at first to monitor for disease activity recurrence um, and simply to know how well this device is working. And we're learning actually a lot about that, by the way. Um, we're seeing small amounts of fluid, let's say it's subretinal fluid and it fluctuates and it doesn't always mean it's, it's, a, it's a given recurrence and we may not necessarily have to jump on every little um, uh, sign of exudation you know, especially if the vision's relatively stable. Um, the other aspect of following patients is making sure they're not developing a problem related to the device. So there's disease monitoring and there's device monitoring. And first and foremost, every patient that has the device and every provider um, that uh, interacts with these patients need to understand that they got to look under the lid, look at the device and make sure everything's okay. Uh, we want to detect a conjunctival problem before it turns into an infection, let's say, and fix it. Um, so at first, I'm going to follow them kind of closely. I may see them, you know, certainly perioperative time frame, a day, a week, a month, somewhat typical to any, any intraocular surgery. And then maybe uh, two or three months later, and maybe every three months thereafter is what I'm thinking uh, for device monitoring, at least at first. But there's some talk about maybe some remote ways to look at uh, device integrity and the surface of the eye. And that could be coming too. But I think after a year, um, if everything's looking pretty good, uh, I don't think we're going to be compelled to necessarily monitor the device that frequently. And the reason why I say that is because in the phase three clinical trial, the primary endpoint at up to 40 weeks, that's when most of the device related complications occurred. Very few were occurring after that. And we're going to have even, you know, much greater long-term follow-up data. And, and if that's true, if that really turns out to be the case, then that's going to be very reassuring. So we don't feel so compelled to, to see these patients frequently. So from a practical standpoint, now that this is approved, say, say you want to do this in a few months, uh, how, how would a physician who wasn't part of the clinical study go about doing this? Um, and, you know, the, the device and implantation in the clinical study, there was, there was a very fixed and, and excellent training program. You know, will people be able to do a training program? Sort of what are the specifics? Yeah, that's actually getting uh, all planned out right now. Um, teams are, are being uh, organized and the, Genentech is laying out a plan uh, to help make sure surgeons that are interested in utilizing the device are adequately trained. And it's actually looking to be very similar to what we did in the clinical trials. 
Um, the first step is just going to be like a peer to peer, like whether it be live meeting or a virtual type meeting where we go over the steps, we review videos, show us how it's done. Um, the second step is, is going to be involving, uh, at the very least, uh, these surgical device specialists in the clinical trials, we call them surgical device liaisons, really, really useful, uh, people that, uh, know the device, know the surgical approach and technique and so forth. Um, and they'll meet with the surgeon. It'll, it'll be a wet lab like setting, um, where they have a, either model I or something like that in which, uh, the steps and, um, are, are reviewed and the equipment is, is, is then actually handled by the surgeon and, um, they understand exactly there are some unique pieces of equipment here. Um, so, um, and in fact, the whole surgery is really very unique. So there's, there's, it's new. There's no doubt about it. And these steps are important to learn how to do them correctly uh, and accurately and so forth. There's nuance like, like many of our operations. So there will be somewhat of a learning curve. And that's, that leads to the last step, which is when you actually do the surgery uh, for the patient, uh, the SDS individuals will, will be coming to the OR um, to be there to help monitor and ensure that the case goes well. And uh, there'll be a set number of cases that they'll be committed to, to be there with you. Now, I think that's great because, because we all have looked at sort of understanding that surgical technique really matters with this. It, the procedure, just looking at it from a video standpoint, somebody as expert as you, it looks like a piece of cake, but there are little nuances within the surgical delivery that, that you guys have all learned and, and taught uh, in the clinical studies, we've all had to go through them uh, since we're all part of these studies. But I'm, I'm glad that Genentech is really committed to con continuing the SDS, the, the the having a person in the OR who you can bounce questions off of and, and help you uh, for those who, who aren't in the study. So we're looking forward to this. I'm sure you're looking forward to it because we have patients just like you do uh, who have the device implanted and are looking forward to uh, uh, getting it in the future. So thank you again for, for joining me on this Retinal Physician podcast, uh, Carl Rogillo. Thank you so much. Exciting time with this new device.